I think as a kid, I just vibrated with the good in the world around me. And then when I was 10 years old, I got the answer key. 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 Just lost. And then all the shame and guilt that came with it. Shame and guilt. The answer Shame and guilt. The answer Shame and guilt. My self-talk before that point was unbelievably abusive. Shame and guilt. Shame and guilt. He said, you know, I don't think that any of this serves you any longer. You need to let it go. If you change the way you view yourself, that changes the way you view the world and can relate to the world and people around you. Every person is divine and is worthy. We are all divine. We are all worthy. my mind that was me saying steve you see yourself wrong yeah. you you don't understand your own origin story we are all divine we are all worthy we are all divine we are all worthy obviously with psychedelics you can get the lights the fractals the dancing bears you know the harlequins and whatever it is you can get a lot of the craziness but the value to me is there are aspects that are far more real than reality because each of us carries this image of reality that isn't true that isn't accurate and often those false views hurt us they limit us and psychedelics allow us to re-examine some things that we considered absolute fact This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone part two enjoy i think as a kid i just vibrated with the good in the world around me and then when i was 10 years old i got the answer key uh you know mormonism has all the answers now it's it's completely false you you don't have the answer to anything but i stopped asking questions i stopped wondering at the world around me because i knew it all mm-hmm. i knew the answer and so you know i i compare my childhood experiences to people around me i mean christine just uh you know how sorry for the summary christine but how fucked up aspects of your childhood were and you know friends that common friends we have in common christine you know their stories i'm just like god i didn't have that um but i think part of my deal is i have serious anxiety and that amplifies everything but 
I think I just stopped asking questions. I just stopped wondering at the world around me. I stopped having doubt. And if you stop having doubt, then you stop asking questions, which means you stop living. You stop seeing. You don't, you stop losing that critical thinking skill. And that's what I really dislike about the religion or dogma in general. Um, but I, I can only relate to this, this particular religion is they did all the thinking for you. Food prepping. I mean, Every aspect, when you should have family home evening, what you should eat. I mean, this is not a, this is a full contact religion. Like this is all in kind of thing. And it, it does remove your identity. It's very weird here in Utah. We, we have a place called Happy Valley, the as locals call, and it's Utah County. It just, it's got some weirdness there and i think a lot of it has to do with keeping up what i call the term keeping up with the smiths everybody's trying to be joseph and emma smith and they are fucking weird they don't even know how toxic they are to each other and and their their business practices and everything and this is supposedly the land of the most righteous the one true church listen people are listening this ain't it and if you want what's going on here in Utah politics to be worldly, you might want to rethink that. You just might want to, because I just, people are fallible. And this organization is made up of fallible human beings who come from all kinds of deceptive, weird backgrounds and lives, trying to make something. And they're profiting off of people like me, like Steve, like others who have come from broken homes we pay our 10% thinking this church is going to have all the answers to our salvation and we'll never have to think again. And that's just lazy. And you don't get out of being a human being doing that. You have to put forth some effort. That's just what it means to be human. And that's why I get frustrated with religion, with politics. When you're looking to your neighbor or your bishop to make your life decisions for you, why are you breathing? What? <laughs> So I'll tell you one of the great missionary moments of my life. I, uh, I went on a Mormon mission to Brazil and I thought, you know, I'm teaching all these strangers about the gospel. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the church to my dad when I get home. So, you know, I remember go home, he's sitting in the front yard, smoking a cigar. I'm like, dad, I want to talk to you about something meaningful to me. And, so, you know, I, I tell him about the church and he's just listening. And he said, son, you seem reluctant to talk to me about the concept of God talking to a man. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just, you know, worried that you might think it's weird or something. He says, oh, no. He says, I absolutely believe it. I see it every day. I see people that God talks to and tells them things. So, so I believe it happens. He said, but. From what I can tell, he tells them some awfully fucked up shit. And uh, so I said, you want to go see the Astros play? He said, yeah, it'd be a good idea. But you <laughs> know, I, I think that's, that's the problem with a lot of people. If God talks to them, he's going to tell them some fucked up shit. Because he's going to tell them whatever they already think, right? Whatever they think is right, he's going to confirm that. And so, again, there's not the introspection. There's not the questioning. So there's not the growth. There's not the insight. Yeah. So what do you think that, I mean, do you think that's really God talking to people? 
Of course not. What do you think it is? I, I, I think it's dogma that, you know, we, we want some external force to give us the answer key, to tell us what's right and wrong. And I don't want to discount that there might be something beyond our understanding, beyond us. Um, but my spiritual journey, which that's the way, you know, I can interpret the universe around me, is I find God when I look inside. I think that, um, you know, anytime I'm frustrated in traffic or in a line or something, my new mantra is I'll just mutter to myself, eight billion gods. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, as quirky as uh, the, the gods on Olympus. Uh, but, you know, I think we all have. Do, do, you, do you mean that by that, that each person is their own God internally? Is that no, what is you mean by that? Is a God. I yeah. mean, I think that is the way that I, when I'm at my best, that's how I see people. And that's how I want to uh, see people. That each person is an expression of divinity. Of yes. the divine. Gotcha. And, yes. and, and they, every person is divine and has, is worthy. Uh, you know, that I, I want to worship the people around me, get to know them and feel them and understand them. Um, so for me, that's the spiritual journey is looking within and getting rid of the bad, which makes room for the good and just learning to see the world around me, learning to vibrate with the good in the world around me. To me, yeah. that's divinity. Yeah. I, 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 I'm glad you, you brought it back to the vibration uh, thing that you brought up before, because when you were talking about these women that were around you, that you just didn't. You didn't see them. You weren't aware of them. You, you said something like when the universe vibrates, you want to vibrate with it. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're always like with, with whatever anxious thoughts or fears or judgments or things like that, that, that we have that we carry around in our minds kind of cloud us from really connecting with other people the way that they're vibing or vibrating or whatever, whatever you want to say, the way that they're being. We're really only seeing our own minds <laughs> reflected onto them. And if, if, if we can learn to still that and really see people for who they are, I, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested how, how you went from being a spiritual kid to having that squashed out of you by the, the way that your brain was trained as a Mormon. And then eventually at some point, point you decided to become a lawyer you decided to become a senator yeah let's take you had it back to college all kinds of yeah. these experiences that eventually brought you to this place of ayahuasca and mushrooms and i i i keep thinking so i do want to say this before i turn it back over to you when when i when i first met a shaman about two or three years ago and he was doing this kind of vetting interview to see if I was, you know, if I could join the the circle that they were going to be doing the ceremony or if I was, I don't know, just a Yahoo. I don't know really what he was checking, but he told me that if I, if I went and I did this, what I was basically going to do was I was going to be a surgeon on my own heart, on yeah. my own mind. Yeah. And what, like whatever things 
I wanted to fix about myself, I was going to be the one who was doing it. And that was what this introspective journey was. I was thinking about that as you were talking about your experience, seeing the lights and recognizing, oh, that's your wife, Sarah. You know, the, the, the experiences that people have that I hear about when they're in this kind of state are, are very different and ve like very unique and to, to each person. But the kinds of reports that I hear that the, the effects of like, it, it, it makes me want to, it makes me feel like we're all one. It makes me more loving. It makes me want to connect. It makes me want to put down whatever walls I've put up that are keeping me away from connecting with people. And that, that's what I heard you saying. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you two stories about religion um, that I think lay out what I'm wanting to express. Um, when, when it was clear that I was losing interest in the Mormon church, um, you know, my bishop tells the story. He said, you're not, you're not very into this, are you? And I said, no, not really. How can you tell? He said, he said, I look out at the congregation in sacrament and all I ever see is the top of your head. You just always have your head down like you don't want to be here, mm. except when things get weird. When things get weird, <laughs> everyone else looks down. That's the only time I see your eyeball. <laughs> fast, fast in testimony meetings. I'm here for yeah. the show. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so <laughs> I could tell many stories. It's awesome. We all could. Um, but so at that point, they assigned a member of the bishopric to be my home teacher. And so this is this is my story about organized religion. And so he said, uh, you know, I'm your home teacher, blah, blah, blah. And I said, OK, I, I, I know the program. You know, that's fine. That's great. You know, I look forward to chatting with you. And so then he said, look, I don't know if these messages are if you care that much. How about I just check in with you periodically? I'm like, that's that's great. That's perfect. You know. And so he would text me the last day of the month. Yes. How you doing? I mean, even, even though it was just text home teaching, he had to check that box. So the last day of every month, it was awesome. I'd tell my, I'd wake up and I'd tell Sarah, I said, I'm going to get the text today. So I'd get, how are you guys doing? Oh, I'm man. like, I'm like doing great. Doing great. You can check that box. So to me, that's what, organized religion comes down to it's checking boxes yeah. see I, I left i left before the smartphones and the texting and being able to home teach through texting i never had that experience that would have been awesome just shoot them a text check off <laughs> yeah. the box man i would have been 100 percent that way but that's so beautiful that it was the even even with a text it was the last day of them how you doing yeah like, you know Hey, your concern, your concern is what gets me through. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, but uh, so, okay, here is that versus true religion. Um, I'm in an ayahuasca ceremony, which uh, I supplemented with uh, four grams of mushrooms. And so, yeah, I, I, I had launched. And yeah, so this guide who I really like, Giancarlo, um, I went to him and i said i said i'm struggling buddy and then uh he said what is it and i said it's it's a lot and uh, that was as articulate as i could be you know i went back to my family roots i'm like it's a lot and uh, so he said all right he says tell me about it and so i told him about when i'm 10 years old which happened to be when i joined the mormon church that i was 
I would just stand on this corner and cry. I was a crossing guard with my sash and my badge. And I picked the corner that was least trafficked because I knew I was just going to sit there and cry. I'd just cry all morning. I'd cry all afternoon. Then when people would walk toward the corner, I'd wipe my tears and, hey, how you doing? You know, get them across the street. And, you know, for me, that kind of, I go back to that place, that there was a break at that point. And, which is funny, that's when I got the answer key, you know? But, uh, so he said, he said, you know, I don't think that any of this serves you any longer. You need to let it go. Mm. And so part of the reason I, I love Giancarlo for many reasons, part of it is he's not one of these dogmatic, dogmatic hierarchical guides that he's the new Dallin Oaks, you know, he's just, he's a guy who has experience and skills. And so you can't offend him. So he said, I think you need to let this go. And so during the middle of the ceremony, I said, John Carlo, how the fuck am I supposed to let this go? I don't even right. know what it is. Yeah. I don't, why did this happen? Why was I so alone as a kid? I mean, my brother killed himself. No adult talked to me about it ever. And so <laughs> he, you know, I love him because he, he, he just, he looked at me and he laughed. He said, I don't know. He said, how could I know that? He said, lay back and ask the medicine. Mm. And so I love that he has faith in the plants rather than in his own shamanic power of discernment, blah, 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 blah. And if he was really Dallin Oaks, he would say, there are three steps to letting it go. <laughs> Step, Step one. one. <laughs> yeah. um, Get visiting teaching and finding yeah. <laughs> But uh, it, no, it would have something to do with my personal worthiness, right? What was oh, I right. doing wrong? Right. Um, but so I laid back. And so uh, he just, he, Giancarlo, he buried me. He put what do you call that Egyptian thing? An ankh on my mm. heavy ankh on my chest. Mm -hmm. And he's throwing rose petals all over me. And, you know, I love the power of suggestion and all this. And so I went back to that place and I, I just felt the aloneness. I'd forgotten how alone I felt as a kid and it hurt and I was scared and sad and, you know, was in that space for a while. And then I got, the answer to it which was it just was right i mean in a sober state of consciousness a normal state of consciousness if you look at me and say steve everything about your childhood it just was you got to move on buddy yeah uh <laughs> okay thanks mm -hmm. but but for some reason that answer it just moved me forward leaps and bounds that it just was and it no longer serves me. Yeah. Now, now, since then, you know, what I realize is we have these experiences in ceremony and we're thinking that's the answer. And quite often what it is, that's the portal. And mm. so that door was opened that my childhood, it just was. Um, but since then, I've had some tremendous insights of, okay, why was it that way? What does it mean? What can I do today? So I'm very lucky that the medicine, it will bring me low. It will reintroduce me to doubt and uncertainty, to fear and aloneness, some of these negative things. But then it picks me up and encourages me that there's the future. We can do better. And so 
you know, since then I've had insights in ceremony, but now I'm getting more and more insights because I think I'm vibrating. I'm becoming more human. I'm just figuring some things out that, and I'm integrating a lot with my wife. I also believe in degrees and skills. So with a professional therapist working through some things and, you know, to me, religion is so much about healing and we draw these false lines between spiritual, emotional, physical, you know, doctor heals the physical, the shrink heals the mind. And, you know, maybe religion does something for the soul. I think, you know, healing is kind of healing and the way we silo out these things is somewhat false. And I just love the healing that's going on that I don't think exists in many organized religions. It's just an invitation for me to look within, to fix some things, let some things go, pick up some new habits and then help other people just being better myself, being whole and independent being present, it allows me to then help others vibrate. I mean, my ability to connect to other people now and meet them where they are and give what they need is just night and day improved. Hmm. Could, could you tell me that that experience that you had as you're imagining your 10 year old self as a crossing guard crying being told that you need to let that go, turning inwards, trying to figure out how to let it go. What, what, what is the healing there? Like it, what, what is healing about letting go an old memory or an old story or something like that? So it's the way for me, it is seeing things as they are. So obviously with psychedelics, you can get the, the lights, the fractals, the dancing bears, you know, the, the Harlequins and whatever it is, you can get a lot of the craziness. But the value to me is there are aspects that are far more real than reality, because each of us carries this image of reality that isn't true, that isn't accurate. And often those false views hurt us. They limit us. And psychedelics allow us to re-examine some things that we considered absolute fact so at the beginning the story i just told you when john carlo invited me to let it go and i saw myself as this 10 year old pathetic kid um before i launched into that i saw this polynesian warrior and he was just glorious muscle on top of muscle and just, I went up to him. Sounds I mean, like was, one of the sons of Helaman you were looking he, at there. He was fierce. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want the workout program that the right. <laughs> Book of Mormon workout. Those, I want some of those pipes, man. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just spectacular, awesome. So I just went up to him and I could not peel my eyes off because he was glorious. I got right up in his grill. And I'm just in awe. And then he sees me and he just reverences me. He just reveres me like he is seeing the exact same. Like he is seeing someone so amazing. And I'm like, weird. And then, then I went into the. But you felt yourself being viewed by someone else as 
with that sense of awe. And so you I, had I didn't that, know that, why. That visceral I just, experience. I just knew that he was revering me. Wow. And so I had this experience where I went back when I'm 10, I saw myself on the corner, how alone I was. And so I just, you know, kept saying it's, it's, I'm not fine. This was not okay. Because I'd always been telling myself, I'm okay. You know, it's fine. I'm, I'm fine. This was okay. It wasn't. And so, you know, just realizing that I was this 10 year old boy in this, this, this bad situation, but that I was, that I endured it, you know? And so it was, I, I gained some respect for myself because I really thought I was pathetic, that I was weak, that I was, you know, that I was fucked up. And then I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror let me see how good you are on journeys. Who was looking back at me, Glenn? Well, I'm going to go with uh, one of the sons of Helaman. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. it was that Polynesian warrior. That was my yeah. reflection. Wow. And so you know, okay, that's that's psychedelic gibberish, right? For people no. who haven't been in that mystical state of consciousness. Yeah. But for people who have been there, that was however real or false or fictional that was that was my mind that was me saying steve you see yourself wrong yeah. you you don't understand your own origin story mm -hmm. and so my self talk before that point was unbelievably abusive mm -hmm. i mean you know my my term of endearment for myself was dumb shit mm -hmm. and uh you know, anything that I did wrong, I'm just like, God, what a dumb shit. And, uh, you know, that's what I really believed. And so since that vision of seeing my soul, okay, do we have souls? Is that what my soul really looks like? Whatever. Seeing how strong I was, that was my 10 year old, 80 pound soul that got me through that time. Seeing that my talk has been nothing but positive since then mm. and if i screw up which i still do at times you know i'll do something I go god what a dumb shit then you know i will i will say out loud i am not a dumb shit i just i screwed this up it's part of the makeup of who i am i'm gonna work my best to get it right next time yeah and that that changes man if you change the way you view yourself, that changes the way you view the world and can relate to the world and people around you. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So much of that. I have had that similar experience. Yeah. yeah I, I remember hearing, I, I think the guy's name is Michael Dobson. That is the head of maps. Is that his name? Dobson? Uh, Rick, Rick, Rick Doblin. Doblin. That's what it is. Um, yeah. I, I heard him talk about uh, one of the clinical trials that they had done with MDMA with somebody who had PTSD from Gulf War or something, lost all of his friends. Um, and he just didn't feel like he deserved to be happy because yeah. these guys died and they didn't have a chance to be happy. And under one session under MDMA, he had this imaginary conversation meeting of the minds with these people. And they said, look, you're here to live the life that we would have lived. F feel as much joy as you can 
and do it for us. And it just flipped this switch in his mind because he was in that state of neuroplasticity. And, you know, right. like he was able to really change the quality of his life just with one of those sessions with a skilled therapist who's guiding it, um, his, his, his mind in that state. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, w- whether it's, like you said, imaginary, fictional, whatever it is, you're, fe- you're having these visceral experiences and feelings that you have to deal with. You can't ignore it. Yeah. And it, and it can be very profound and changing I, in, in my experience with it as well. That's, I was having the same negative talk for myself. And that's what led me to ketamine is um, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop just beating myself up emotionally and just questioning every decision I made in my life that led me to how I couldn't keep, you know, prop two and all that stuff, how it couldn't keep going the way it did. There was a lot of weird negative things. And then having that disruption in that negative thought process. And again, the ketamine just jolted me. It was really, it was really the mushrooms that really got me to get to those dark places, um, reflect on it. And also on the journey up was letting it go and being okay. And knowing that it was, it all had to happen the way it did and seeing a sort of bigger, bigger picture there. What were you going to say, Steve? Well, yeah, you are a great example to me of how the wrong self image can can distort our reality it's you know working with you on prop two and subsequent uh you know to make medical cannabis available to patients in utah it was so unbelievable to watch you and to see what you accomplished i mean i spent 16 years in the legislature and in that entire time other than LGBTQ rights and a few things with higher ed, I did not do what you did. And, uh, you know, and even those things I did, I did them inside, you know, kind of a confined space where you can make things happen. Man, you took, you took the church into open field and beat them. So yeah, I can't say that I've even done that. So I'm just watching you in awe, seeing your talents, your abilities, your goodness, your patience and love for people around you and you wouldn't celebrate with me. You wouldn't celebrate your successes with me and with others because you didn't see them. We would have these victories in your mind was in what we hadn't yet accomplished. And we, we didn't get this. We started with, we failed. And, you know, I didn't know what was driving that, you know, other than, you get in a battle and sometimes you lose, you know, you lose sight of what you really are accomplishing, how well things are going, but, you know, piecing it together now, knowing about how you were struggling mentally. I think that's what it was, is you refused to see yourself as God. You refused to see yourself as this glorious, wonderful human who could accomplish and did accomplish great things because no, you were just Christine, with all of the negative things that you were carrying around in your mind. Yeah, that's, and it's true. And I think we all do that as human beings. We have these versions of ourselves, this negative talk that we, we say to ourselves, and we pull that, that version of ourselves out and we just keep laying it on and laying it on. And, and yeah. that becomes our prison. That becomes our reality. Yes. I, 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 I like what you said 
she wasn't focusing on the accomplishments. She was focusing on what hadn't been accomplished. And that reminded me of what you said earlier um, about your 10 year old self that you just accepted that your experience is what was. It wasn't mm -hmm. something different as it isn't what you think it should have been. And so you weren't focusing on uh, what it wasn't, <laughs> what it could have been differently. You're like focusing on what it was and just really accepting that. Um, I, I've been listening to an audiobook recently by Byron Katie called Loving What Is. Are either of you familiar with that? No. It's, uh, it, it's really, really powerful stuff. And it, and it speaks to this, Lo loving what is. Not, not getting caught up in those stories of, oh, this should be something different. Right. What wow. is it? Wow. <laughs> what is it? Because anytime you're saying it should be something different, you're, you got, here's what it is, but then yes. this, what, it, what over there, and then there's like this gap between what is and what should be. And what fills up that, that gap? It, it, like anger, hate, um, shame, guilt, greed, you know, like all kinds of stuff fills up um, that space between what is and what should wow. be or what you think should be. And that doesn't mean that you don't work for improvement, improving yourself, improving the world around, but just like really accepting things as they are and not wasting any time on stuff that you just, you can't do anything <laughs> about. You know, part of the reason I love talking about these experiences with other people sharing experiences is it's a good way to integrate and, and realize some things I hadn't realized until you said that, what is the message I got? It might not have been just this dismissive. It just was move on. It would more properly, maybe it was an invitation to see what it was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't what I thought it was. I wasn't this pathetic kid, this miserable kid. I was a strong motherfucker who got mm -hmm. through, you know, that that 10 year old version of me, succeeded you know he carried he carried steve urquhart forward to where i could have some really neat things in my life and so you know it just was well what was it it was it was this lonely alone but kind of kind of strong kid yeah yeah and and the the way that i've come to understand that phrase of letting it go like the the shaman told you well maybe this doesn't serve you anymore maybe it's time to let it go I'm not going to tell you how to do that. You go in and figure out how to do it yourself is, is that reframing of the story. So like thinking, well, th this is how it was in the past. This is how it should be. And, and we carry that around in our minds and it interferes with what's going on even in our life right now. It, 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 it you used the phrase, Steve, distorting reality. It does. And it's our own thinking. It's our own minds that we're doing that. And th this is where I've seen so much value of, uh, mushrooms or ayahuasca or you know the this uh, getting into that state of neuroplasticity and really going okay let's let's clean this up let's make this bed let's smooth out the wrinkles and it's just it's 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 a, a lifetime process uh, of yeah. of self-discovery and yeah. i hope so yeah man i hope it's a lifetime process i yeah. when i breathe my last breath i hope i keep learning and growing all the way to that moment yeah uh, I just, that's what I found has helped me when you were talking about that, that space of what I would just call being present, you know, mm -hmm. not wishing for what could have been. That's what I needed the medicine to help me. The ketamine stopped me from that repetitive thinking, oh, prop two should have looked like this. This should have turned out like this and yeah. letting go of that 
and and it was Steve's encouraging words. Now he was far into his plant journey before I was. So it was really nice to have this sort of wisdom that he was discovering sort of trickling into my head before I ever really got into the plant medicine myself. And when I did the ketamine, I realized the negative thought that was going on. And then each journey that I had with the mushrooms, every time I took the time to really focus on being present and being mindful and grateful for what was right here, I realized everything did happen the way it was supposed to. I don't know why I was thinking and telling myself it was supposed to look differently. Who, who the hell am I to, to predict how everybody's going to make a choice so my version of reality pans right. out? How right. fucking arrogant is that? Yeah. And so realizing, oh, oh, I understand what that means. It all happened the way it was supposed to happen because everybody has free agency. Everybody gets to make choice, myself included. So I let a lot of that kind of stuff start to just go and melt yeah. and, and accepting that what is, is what is, and yeah. it's okay. And that is what I mean by spirituality. You're getting into more of a flow state rather than fighting against the universe, thinking you can script the universe, that the universe didn't carry out its proper role. You're in flow state. You're vibrating with the world around you, and that makes you you know, more aware of the good you're doing, which in turn makes you more aware of, Oh, and here's some things I can continue to do. Yeah. And, and I, I want to try to let go of something right, right now, right here, <laughs> because get it out. I'm, I'm, when I hear you, Christine say it's what's supposed to happen. I start, I start filtering that through that Mormon mind of mine that's like, okay, there was an architect God who set out, this oh. is going to happen, then this is going to happen. This is... And so, you know, like when people go, everything happens for a reason. And I roll my eyes because I'm like, oh, you think that there's this big puppet master God that's just moving things around. Like I need to let go of that, the way that I'm interpreting that word, because there's other ways of seeing that with the, what, what, why did things happen the way that they did? Because everything lined up in a way to make that happen <laughs> that's just it and that's what's been going yeah. on in this universe for 13.8 billion years yes. since the big bang all of these little atoms and molecules just in the exact spot when they're right here and the conditions like this are like this and this is 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 like this then this is what happens and yeah that's so remember when i was telling you during my story when i brought advocates to the space and as they showed up a lot of them heard the same message for me. You showed up right when you were supposed to, and I'm glad you're mm -hmm. here because each one, of, even as fucked up of how everything panned out, every person's energy added a certain layer and, and flavor to this whole beautiful story. And every person negative or positive created this incredible amount of energy, this vortex that just kept pulling people in. And so when people want to give me credit for things, I get a little, I get a little hesitant in taking that credit. I just saw that there was this energy that, that was happening, that was needed. And I, I just was, it's like spinning the, the, the uh, revolving door. I was just the first person in there that pushed it. And then it's all this energy that just kind of took it over. It was just beyond me. Yeah. I'm just thrilled to have been somehow a catalyst or some sort of weird conduit 
to well, you, you, you are energy and I am energy and Steve is energy exactly. and like everybody that worked on this is energy. So when you're talking about the energy coming together, you, you might as well say the people coming together, the, the minds yeah. coming together, the, the, the effort coming together. And it's all, yeah. And finding that value and realizing everybody had a purpose to this. He had Marty. Yeah, right. <laughs> like all of it. All he of it. Marty. And they all played the role. And, and I'm just thrilled to be part of this amazing story and how it unfolds. I don't know because, you know, decisions will be made tomorrow that I don't even know about today. Mm -hmm. And I will make those choices and others will respond and make choices. And we don't know what, which makes just kind of life beautiful, mm. you know, yeah. is, is, is that. You know, and I'd say, Glenn, in, in your world, my perspective is there definitely is a God. There definitely is an architect who can create and destroy, is capable of love and hate. And, you know, that God's name is Glenn. And mm. so, you know, take care of him, nurture him, build him, you know, let him do his best work. And, you know, I was part up. I, I was part of, I was caught up in Christine's godlike creation. I mean, uh, you know, let's tell it as a, as a fictional narrative. She came to the Capitol and, you know, one of the first figures she talks with an all wise Senator, um, let's give him the name Senator Steve Urquhart. You know, she tells her story. This is what I desire to do. And uh, with all of his wisdom says, sweetheart, that ain't going to happen. So you, so know, you, not, you not, were the first I, Senator that she talked to when she went? I wasn't the first, but I was one of the first Christine, wasn't I? It, I talked to Jim and then Froer and then you. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was because you were the Senate sponsor, Jim, because he announced he had some health issues. So I thought he was the senator I could pitch cannabis to to yeah. help whatever he had going on. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm like, wow, this is great. Um, you know, by this point, I'm I'm smoking tons of weed and I'm a big fan. And so uh, I'm like, this is great. I'm all with you, but I don't see this happening. I just you know, you carry on, uh, uh, Don Quixote, you get it done. Yeah. Um, but you know, then even though Christine is saying she has healing to do work to do, I got to see a God go into action. And then, you know, she re-enlisted me later when things got a little sketchy. She's like, Hey, Sancho Panza, you know, mm -hmm. jump in and, and help me out with this. And I got to be part of that. And so, how is that not godlike that she saw the need of patience and she took on Goliath, she took on all sorts of monsters and made it happen? Um, yeah, if you can, that's amazing. If you can improve on that even more, wow, how can I help? Let's do this. So, you're just reinforcing this whole Deva and Goliath thing for me, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, 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 the god, the divinity the the feminine divine versus the goliath of the mormon church story i like that well i look at people who move the needle politically and they all share one quality if they move it significantly is they don't give up mm -hmm. and uh that's what was amazing to me and and they can have the same conversation with a different person every day going over basic stuff offensive questions moronic questions just a smile on their face they tell the story and they keep pushing moving forward so uh when christine when she had these defections and needed help 
you know, I jumped in and said, yeah, I'm happy to do this. And uh, I got a friend of mine, Charlie Evans, a great lobbyist. I said, hey, I have a client for you. He's like, good. I always like clients. Yeah, this one isn't going to pay you a penny. He's like, well, okay, what do we got to do? So uh, we would just the Mormon church through everything it had at this. We were thinking, okay, we've outed it. It, it won't want to go forward when people know how dishonest it's being. We haven't pegged. It didn't care, man. And this is a fault of Marty, which, by the way, you should know, Marty was my mentor. When I went into the house, oh, he wow. was he was speaker and I was one of his two golden boys and he really promoted me. And so Marty and I have a long history. And, you know, the church used to be smarter before he took over in this position and it wouldn't have its fingerprints all over things, but you know, uh, he didn't care it, to him. This was, this was God did not want medical cannabis in Utah. And again, God must've spoken to him. And so he had a lot of autonomy clearly to do things and he just kept coming. And so even though we made it very plain that the church was being dishonest, the church was, these were all its puppets. It was running things. They kept coming and it was discouraging to me and Charlie and Christine at the end of long days. I always forget that Christine still is a patient. I always forget that, you know, until like, you know, she doesn't answer a text right away and she'll say, I have a migraine, talk to you tomorrow. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's a patient. She still has a brain tumor. She still has a few conditions. And so at the end of the day, she would leave and Charlie and I would look at each other. We're like, she's done she's not coming back. There's, she's done. And I mean, what stupid, foolish men to think that because already the ground she had covered. And of course she was back the next day, just, just fierce and, and won't stop. And so, you know, a lot of people, they want to show up to one political meeting, state their, their, you know, give their speech. And then what do they always say? Oh, their minds were already made up. They didn't even listen to a word I said. Yeah, no shit, because you came in at the last minute. People have been working on this issue for a long, long time, and you weren't there. And so, Christine, she came in, and people, including me, were saying, yeah, this isn't going to happen. But she didn't give up. She just kept pushing, kept pushing, and she continues to push. You know, and the, the church, these legislators who, you know, are in on it, people who are making money off this uh, – you know, uh, very few dispensaries satisfying a lot of customers. They don't want things to change that much. And she continues to push. And so just this incredible ability to just wake up in the morning, no, what, no matter what happened the night before and just keep pushing. It's, it's something I'm in awe of. So I'd like to hear a little bit more, Steve, about your decision and I don't know how far you want to take it back. If you want to go to college, if you want to, uh, when you became a lawyer or when you decided to become a senator, because you had your own transformation story as you decided to dedicate your life to public service and, and, and then the falling apart, all of that. Um, what, yeah. what, what, what do you want to say about that part of your story? Um, I think it's all pretty boring until I started to fall apart. And so, you know, that's, that's when things got interesting. That's when 
I started to escape dogma and escape the control of others. And so I'll just quickly skip over, uh, you know, everything leading up to that point. So again, my parents hated each other. I didn't have, you know, much discipline. I think abuse took the place of discipline, you know, and so my parents, they didn't know what to do. And while I was a very devout Mormon, I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't smoke, I wouldn't have sex. I, mean, I just have these and still have at times these incredible disconnects because I wanted to be good, I believe. But I stole a car when yeah. I was in high school. Who does that, man? And I mean, I, I had it when I'm on my mission. And so I, I went Wait, to you were driving. Oh, 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 not not down in Brazil, but at home, you you still had a. Stolen. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't confess to having stolen a car yeah, in your I missionary stole interview? It, stole it and kept it. So yeah, I went to my president and said, look, I wasn't trying to hide anything. It just never occurred to me that this was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I stole a car. And uh, <laughs> so we had to deal with that. And um, so, you know, a lot of times I don't, if it seems like I'm not making sense, I don't make sense. And, but you know, so I really tried to be good and uh, what to to survive at home. I realized all I needed was straight A's. I needed great grades. So, OK, I can do that. No problem. You know, went to good school, Williams College back east, uh, was on the Mormon plan, went to BYU law school, met Sarah, met her, married her. We had four babies. Everything's going according to plan. And then um, I just started doing some math and I just realized that there's no fucking way in hell that the Mormon church, the Mormon religion is God's plan. I mean, that'd be the dumbest plan ever, right? Mm -hmm. Plan A captures like 0.1%, 0.01% of all people on earth. They have this probationary period where they have the gospel and they're tested. Well, everyone else is other, right? Everyone else is catch-all. And so for me, it it really became an issue of math before anything else. You know, because I was questioning, it was the LGBTQ stuff that was the final push. But just the math of the whole proposition, I'm like, this this can't be right. And so being an Urquhart, um, I kept it bottled up. You know, I didn't, I didn't tell my wife I didn't really tell anyone I just stopped believing and for me if I no longer believed then that meant I no longer believed in the commandments and because I had the answer key from the time I was 10 years old I hadn't bothered to determine on my own what was wrong and what was right um, so I just started doing everything and a lot of it felt nice and good. And what I realize now is my whole life, I've just been battling tremendous anxiety. And, you know, I'm the, I'm the happiest drunk or drugged out dude you've ever met. I mean, I'm never once have I lost my cool when I'm altered because I just relax. I relax into it. And so... Uh, so when when did you start like your first your first drink you know so so you you've you've been faithfully obeying the word of wisdom your entire life 
you, you do the math, you see, wait a second, this plan of salvation thing, this doesn't really make any sense to me. I don't believe this anymore. At some point you're like, I'm going to take that first drink. I'm going to act on this uh, lust. <laughs> like I, what, what, what were those experiences like for you? Cause that's, that's a pretty big shift to go yeah. from not doing that to like, okay, I'm going to open up the floodgates. Yeah. So I went into the legislature 2001. I was in the house 2001 through eight. And, you know, there was active Mormon trying my best. And it was shortly after I went over to the Senate. Um, that, so that would have been 2009 that I just really am questioning things. And so um, I was out to dinner with a friend and, uh, uh, you know, I was drinking my Coke and uh, <laughs> there was there was alcohol in my Coke. And so, you know, I kind of looked up. I was startled and he winked at me and uh, fine. It was Katie bar to the door after that. And so mm. um, I needed to make up for lost time. And again, I liked the escape. And so uh, I rather quickly uh, became an alcoholic and uh, alcohol is good, but oxy was even better at escaping. And so uh, a lot of my time in the Senate, I was pretty strung out. So w w did, did you hide this from your wife, from Sarah, or did she know that you were drinking and taking oxy? Oh, I hid it from everyone. And so, you know, that's part of what Sarah and I had to deal with and still deal with is just the incredible amounts of deception that I'm mm. appearing one way, but living this really different life. And, you know, I'm, I'm really only recently speaking my native tongue, which is truth. Mm. I think that's for all of us, our native tongue. And, uh, you know, starting on this, I think that I was telling you about 10 years old on this corner, I would get by a lot of life by creating these fictions and telling myself that things were different than they really were. And I got very good at it. And uh, so I was living this fiction that somehow it all made, it's like stealing the car, somehow not understanding that was wrong. I can't explain it. And so um, I was in this fiction where somehow it was okay. But then, you know, these substances, you want to you wanna worry about the real drugs, worry about alcohol, worry about Oxycontin, worry about these things. They're, they're hellacious. And so, you know, I just became more and more lost. And then, uh, you know. But legally lost. Well, I guess not with the Oxycontin. That was... You probably didn't have that legally, did or did did you have a legal prescription for those, or were you? No, illegal. Yeah, it's pretty pretty easy to find any drug you want. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, then one thing led to another, and I'm in the middle of just this torrid affair. Um, what made it torrid? Oh well, it was an escape. I mean, it was. God, it was an escape, you know, sex, sex is immersive. 
it's 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 the best drug there is and so um you know sex is is a great escape but then also shit why not just live this second life where you know play house and um you know i don't feel bad saying that because it was it was you know i made promises to everyone around me that just weren't true I thought they were true while I was saying them. And, you know, so I was in two affairs and deeply into them. And, you know, I feel really badly about that because, you know, I was telling the women, no, it's, it's going to be us. And while I was saying it, I meant it, but I didn't mean it. I mean, you know, in reality, because Sarah's, I love Sarah. She's everything. And, you know, just, just lost. And then all the shame and guilt that came with it. Um, you know, then I realized, God, I'm a fucking dad. I'm, I'm him in every way. Oh, your dad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm my dad. I'm doing exactly what he did. And, uh, God, that just, so, you know, huge funk and it, it wasn't fun. I mean, it was very destructive to everything and including me. Um, how long, how long did I, this go on? You said like 2009 or so. And I, yesterday we talked, you talked about 2014 as well. So five, six years. Um, well, uh, so, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, that was probably eight years. And then the women probably three years. Mm. Um, you know, and Sarah, I mean, I blew up, um, you know, dragged Sarah into Sarah's super classy. She's great. Dragged her into just some really awful situations, humiliating situations. And, um, so, you know, (laughs) part of coming clean and speaking my native tongue is I'm having to backtrack and go over a lot of things. So only fairly recently out of session, I'm like feeling more human feelings and, and wanting to be honest and take responsibility. So I said to Sarah, I said, you don't even know that I tried to kill myself, do you? Mm. She's like, what? And so, you know, I told her the story that, you know, I was in a hotel room one night with a lot of oxy and, down them all and you know it definitely would have done the trick and uh my phone wasn't charged at the time and i didn't have a charger and uh not meaning to but i i couldn't really make a call or i would have made a call the instant after i did it you know i just realized shit i don't really want to die (laughs) i uh why why didn't you well, the reasons I did, um, you know, I was just in this mess and couldn't see any way out. And I mean, anytime there was turbulence on an airplane, I'm like, oh, God, I'm sorry for the rest of you. But if we hit a mountain, that'd be so fucking awesome. Or, you know, I mean, I just I really I if, if I knew I was going to die at that point, I would have had just a huge smile on my face. I would have my last breath would have been a sigh of relief. And so I just wanted out 
but I didn't know how to be honest. And I couldn't, I didn't understand the depth of Sarah's love for me. The people, I'm not afraid of any fucking human being, any situation. What I'm afraid of are monsters that are out there and they're monsters of my own creation. And I'm really afraid of people who love me. And so, you know, it's tough to love me because I won't show much. And when I do, and I hope in all of this, I should be speaking past tense because I think I'm moving past it. And so Sarah really scared me because I knew she loved me and I loved her. So I don't want to disappoint her and all this. And so I couldn't really reach out to her. I couldn't reach out to people who truly loved me because of the shame and well, what if they stop loving me and all of that. And, but then when I took it, you know, took all those pills, I just, I'm thinking of my kids and, you know, I've, although I was absent more than I should have been during this, um, I'm a good dad. 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 All right. And this is where I want to end part two of this series. And there are a few things that I want to highlight. We talked a lot today about letting things go that no longer serve us. And you just heard a perfect example of why certain things need to be let go of. So I couldn't really reach out to her. I couldn't reach out to people who truly loved me because of the shame and well, what if they stop loving me and all of that. Steve couldn't reach out to people who loved him because his own sense of shame and unworthiness were in the way. He needed to let them go. But how? How do you do that? It sounds so dismissive. I know it sounds dismissive when people go, oh, just let it go. It doesn't serve you anymore. How do you do that? What does it mean? If that's something that's hard for you that you don't really understand what it means and how to do it, I encourage you to explore that further. <laughs> Try and figure out what does it mean? What does it mean for you to let go of something? How do you let go of something while still honoring it? while not burying your head in the sand and just pushing it away. What does it mean to let something go? Now, at the end of the last discussion, I talked a lot about this thing that I called a mind fog. These distortions that we carry around that are simply a natural part of being a human being. Now, I've dedicated my life to shining a light on these distortions. You've probably heard me do that a number of times in numerous ways over the last eight and a half year lifespan of this podcast, and I'm obviously still evolving in my ability to recognize and deal with these distortions. And to that end, I've made the decision to go back to school to get a master's of science in clinical mental health counseling. I'm really excited about this. I start in mid-February, and I'll be studying for the next two years. And then I'll do my internships and get my license, which will take another year and a half or so. But I'm really excited about this direction for my life. And I want you listeners to know that I will, of course, continue to share what I'm learning with you here through this podcast. Because the mind is where we all live. And a healthy mind, a happy mind, a joyful mind, a forgiving mind, a mind that has learned how to recognize what is true and what is false, a mind that knows how to embrace truth, to love reality, to let go of false distortions, that mind is the mind that I hope I'm creating for myself. And I hope that my efforts with this podcast will help you with your minds as well. So I'd like to ask you once again to please support this podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber. 
You'll find a link to do so under this episode description at the website infantsonthrones.com. And if you're interested in my services as a life coach while I'm going through the next two to three years of becoming a licensed therapist, please reach out to me and let's see what we can do together. And now I want to end today's episode by sharing a TED Talk with you. Now you're going to be hearing from Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, who we referenced earlier in this discussion. What Rick says over the next 15 minutes will add another layer of context to everything that you just heard from Steve and Christine about their experiences with psychedelics and their own mental health. The times, they are a-changin', and Rick Doblin is doing great work that I am very interested in. So, here is his August 2019 TED Talk, The Future of Psychedelic-Assisted Psychotherapy. I desire all to receive it. Uh, preparing for this talk has been scarier for me than preparing for LSD therapy. <laughs> Psychedelics are to the study of the mind what the microscope is to biology and the telescope is to astronomy. Dr. Stanislav Grof spoke those words. He's one of the leading psychedelic researchers in the world, and he's also been my mentor. Today, I'd like to share with you how psychedelics, when used wisely, have the potential to help heal us, help inspire us, and perhaps even to help save us. In the 1950s and 60s, psychedelic research flourished all over the world and showed great promise for the fields of psychiatry, psychology and psychotherapy, neuroscience, and the study of mystical experiences. But psychedelics leaked out of the research settings, and began to be used by the counterculture and by the anti-Vietnam War movement. And there was unwise use. And so there was a backlash. And in 1970, the U.S. government criminalized all uses of psychedelics, and they began shutting down all psychedelic research. And this ban spread all over the world and lasted for decades, and it was tragic, since psychedelics are really just tools, and whether their outcomes are beneficial or harmful depend on how they're used. Psychedelic means mind manifesting, and it relates to drugs like LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, iboga, and other drugs. When I was 18 years old, I was a college freshman, I was experimenting with LSD and mescaline, and these experiences brought me in touch with my emotions, and they helped me have a spiritual connection that, unfortunately, my bar mitzvah did not produce. <laughs> uh, when I wanted to tease my parents, I would tell them that they drove me to psychedelics, because my bar mitzvah had failed to turn me into a man. <laughs> But most importantly, psychedelics gave me this feeling of our shared humanity, of our unity with all life. And other people reported that same thing as well. And I felt that these experiences had the potential to help be an antidote to tribalism, to fundamentalism, to genocide and environmental destruction. And so I decided to focus my life on changing the laws and becoming a legal psychedelic psychotherapist. <laughs> Um, now, half a century after the ban, we're in the midst of a global renaissance of psychedelic research. Psychedelic psychotherapy is showing great promise for the treatment of 
post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, depression, social anxiety, substance abuse, and alcoholism, and suicide. Psychedelic psychotherapy is an attempt to go after the root causes of the problems with just relatively few administrations, as contrasted to most of the psychiatric drugs used today that are mostly just reducing symptoms and are meant to be taken on a daily basis. Psychedelics are now also being used as tools for neuroscience to study brain function and to study the enduring mystery of human consciousness. And psychedelics and the mystical experiences they produce are being explored for their connections between meditation and mindfulness, including a paper just recently published about lifelong Zen meditators taking psilocybin in the midst of a meditation retreat and showing long-term benefits and brain changes. Now, how do these drugs work? Modern neuroscience research has demonstrated that psychedelics reduce activity in what's known as the brain's default mode network. This is where we create our sense of self. It's our equivalent to the ego, and it filters all incoming information according to our personal needs and priorities. When activity is reduced in the default mode network, our ego shifts from the foreground to the background, and we see that it's just part of a larger field of awareness. It's similar to the shift that Copernicus and Galileo were able to produce in humanity using the telescope to show that the Earth was no longer the center of the universe, but was actually something that revolved around the sun, something bigger than itself. For some people, this shift in awareness is the most important and among the most important experiences of their lives. They feel more connected to the world bigger than themselves. They feel more altruistic, and they lose some of their fear of death. Not all drugs work this way. MDMA, also known as ecstasy or Molly, works fundamentally different. And I'll be able to share with you the story of Marcella, who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder from a violent sexual assault. Marcella and I were introduced in 1984. When MDMA was still legal, but it was beginning also to leak out of therapeutic circles, Marcella had tried MDMA in a recreational setting, and during that, her past trauma flooded her awareness, and it intensified her suicidal feelings. During our first conversation, I shared that when MDMA was is taken therapeutically, it can reduce the fear of difficult emotions, and she could help. Move forward past her trauma. I asked her to promise not to commit suicide if we were to work together, and she agreed and made that promise. During her therapeutic sessions, Marcella was able to process her trauma more fluidly, more easily, and yet she was able to tell that the rapist had told her that if she ever shared her story, he would kill her. And she realized that that was keeping her a prisoner in her own mind, and so being able to share the story and experience the feelings and the thoughts in her mind freed her, and she was able to decide that she wanted to move forward with her life. And in that moment, I realized that MDMA could be very effective for treating PTSD. Now, 35 years later, after Marcella's treatment, she's actually a therapist. Training other therapists to help people overcome PTSD with MDMA. 
Now, how does MDMA work? How did MDMA help Marcella? People who have PTSD have brains that are different from those of us who don't have PTSD. They have a hyperactive amygdala where we process fear. They have reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex where we think logically, and they have reduced activity in the hippocampus where we store memories into long-term storage. MDMA changes the brain in the opposite way. MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala, increases activity in the frontal cortex, and increases connectivity between the amygdala and the hippocampus to permit traumatic memories to move into long-term storage. Recently, researchers at Johns Hopkins published a paper in Nature, in which they demonstrated that MDMA releases oxytocin, the hormone of love and nurturing. These same researchers also did studies in octopuses, who are normally asocial unless it's mating season. But lo and behold, you give them MDMA, and they become prosocial. <laughs> um, several months after Marcella and I worked together, the Drug Enforcement Administration moved to criminalize ecstasy, having no knowledge of its therapeutic use. So I went to Washington. And I went into the headquarters of the Drug Enforcement Administration, and I filed a lawsuit demanding a hearing at which psychiatrists and psychotherapists would be able to present information about therapeutic use of MDMA to try to keep it legal. And in the middle of the hearing, the DEA freaked out, declared an emergency, and criminalized all uses of MDMA. And so the only way that I could see to bring it back was through science, through medicine. And through the FDA drug development process. So in 1986, I started Maps as a nonprofit psychedelic pharmaceutical company. It took us 30 years till 2016 to develop the data that we needed to present to FDA to request permission to move into the large-scale phase three studies that are required to prove safety and efficacy before you get approval for prescription use. Tony. Was a veteran in one of our pilot studies. According to the Veterans Administration, there's over a million veterans now disabled with PTSD, and at least 20 veterans a day are committing suicide. Many of them from PTSD. The treatment that Tony was to receive was three and a half months long, but during that period of time, he would only get MDMA on three occasions. Separated by 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, three before the first MDMA session for preparation, and three after each MDMA session for integration. We call our treatment approach inner-directed therapy, in that we support the patient to experience whatever is emerging within their minds or their bodies. Even with MDMA, this is hard work, and a lot of our subjects have said, "I don't know why they call this ecstasy." <laughs> uh, during Tony's first MDMA session, he lay on the couch. He had eye shades on. He listened to music, and he would speak to the therapists, who were a male-female co-therapy team, whenever he felt that he needed to. After several hours, in a moment of calmness and clarity, Tony shared that he had realized that his PTSD was a way of connecting him to his friends. It was. A way of honoring the memory of his friends who had died, but he was able to shift and see himself through the eyes of his dead friends, and he realized that they would not want him to suffer, to squander his life. They would want him to live more fully, which they were unable to do. 
And so he realized that there was a new way to honor their memory, which was to live as fully as possible. He also realized that he was telling himself a story that he was taking opiates for pain, but actually he realized he was taking them for escape. And so he decided he didn't need the opiates anymore, he didn't need the MDMA anymore, and he was dropping out of the study. That was seven years ago. Tony is still free of PTSD, has never returned to opiates, and is helping others less fortunate than himself in Cambodia. The data that we presented to FDA from 107 people in our pilot studies, including Tony, showed that 23% of the people that received therapy without active MDMA no longer had PTSD at the end of treatment. This is really pretty good for this patient population. However, when you add MDMA, the results more than double to 56% no longer having PTSD. But But most importantly, once people learn that if they don't need to suppress their trauma, but they can process it, they keep getting better on their own. So at the 12-month follow-up, one year after the last treatment session, two-thirds no longer have PTSD. And of the one-third that do, many have clinically significant reductions in symptoms. Thank you. Um, on the basis of this data, the FDA has declared MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD a breakthrough therapy. FDA has also declared psilocybin a breakthrough therapy for treatment-resistant depression, and just recently approved esketamine for depression. I'm proud to say that we have now initiated our phase three studies. And if the results are as we hope, And if they're similar to the phase two studies, by the end of 2021, FDA will approve MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. If approved, the only therapists that will be able to directly administer it to patients are going to be therapists that have been through our training program, and they will only be able to administer MDMA under direct supervision in clinic settings. We anticipate that over the next several decades, there will be thousands of psychedelic clinics established at which therapists will be able to administer MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, and other psychedelics to potentially millions of patients. These clinics can also evolve into centers where people can come for psychedelic psychotherapy for personal growth, for couples therapy, or for spiritual mystical experiences. Humanity now is in a race between catastrophe and consciousness. The psychedelic renaissance is here to help consciousness triumph. And now, if you all just look under your seats... <laughs> just joking. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rick. I guess it's a supportive audience. Yes, very. Um, <laughs> they've not. You've, many of them have also been to Burning Man. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. There's some synergy. Um, so, in your talk, you talked about 
using these drugs to address some pretty serious traumas. Yeah. So, what yeah. about some more common mental illnesses like anxiety and depression? And is that where microdosing comes in? Well, microdosing can be helpful for depression. I, I do know someone that has been using it, but in general, for therapeutic purposes, we prefer macrodosing rather than microdosing in order to really help people deal with the root causes. Microdosing is more for creativity, for artistic inspiration, for focus, and it also does have a mood elevation lift. But I think for serious illnesses, we'd rather. Not get people thinking that they need a daily drug, but do more deeper, intense work. And what about outside the United States、um, and North America? Is this research being done there? Oh yeah, we're we're globalizing.、Um, our phase three studies are actually being done in Israel, Canada, and the United States. So once we get approval in FDA, it'll also become approved in Israel and in Canada. We're just starting research、um, in Europe, and we're actually.、Um, Going to be training some therapists from China. That's great. We were going to do an audience vote to see if people felt like this was a good idea to move forward with this research or not. <laughs> but I have a feeling I know the answer to that. So, thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. Thank you, Al. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there! Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets light. Destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down arms like a knight, choosing love when I pick up this mic.